0: Thank you, worship team, that was wonderful. Redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die. And if I'm reading Revelation correctly, it will be your theme if you're a believer in Jesus through eternity, not just till you die, but through eternity, redeeming love that God bought us back from our sinful death condition and that becomes the theme of our lives uh, what a glorious thing to say. Um, Shall be till I die. Death is something we tend not to talk about in polite company. We come up with all sorts of euphemisms and uh, ways of talking around it and ignoring it and acting like it's not real. And, and, and it's something we've got to think about. I, one of the things I actually love about going to funerals and weddings for that matter, big events, is that the Christians there aren't uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, Formal events, events that talk about things like covenant, like a marriage, or death, like a funeral, make most people really uncomfortable. They're not even sure how to talk about it. They don't have the vocabulary. They haven't been thinking about this much ahead of time. It's just been you know the lakers and not much about death on their weekly schedule of things to think about well well christians it's always amazing in those environments tend to be people who have been talking about things like death way ahead of time in some ways our whole lives are preparing to die that's not fatalistic that's realistic it really is amazing how easily and often we neglect thinking about death to the degree we should. I loved my grandmother. My grandmother was not, she was a small woman and she was elderly when she died, but, but no one would ever describe my grandmother as a little old lady. She had a personality that was so big it would just never occur to you or refer to her in a way that would give you a picture of her sort of over in the corner. She was not a little old lady. When Lee Tonnis was in the room, you knew it. Uh, she was a matriarch in, in many ways in my family. And I knew she hadn't been well. But when I got the phone call that told me she had died, it, it was just, I got pounded by that. And then when I got on a plane and I flew to South Carolina and I walked into the funeral home and I saw my grandmother's body, it was a wave of grief all over again. It didn't give me any new information But it was a different level of understanding of my grandmother's death. And then, when we went to the cemetery, to the plot right next to my grandfather's, and watched her body go into the ground, and watched the workers impatiently waiting for us to leave so they could get on with the finished burial, when we all walked away it was a different level of grief sometimes the deepest wailing is reserved for that moment many of you know exactly what i'm talking about i've experienced that with quite a few of you actually and and it's brutal it's brutal there's a sense of grief and sadness and loneliness, even when you're with family and friends, and you get a sense of the tragedy of death when you finally turn around and walk away from the grave. Burial is a brutal thing. It is a horrible thing. And you can talk about the circle of life, Lion King, you know. Uh, You you can talk about uh, death in ways that try to minimize the the punch in the gut of it, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Uh, You can maybe convince yourself on a superficial level that death isn't a horrific thing that you need to think about and so this morning, we think about death. Last week, we, we, we heard about and read about and, and were preached to about the death of Jesus. We've been thinking about his death, but this morning, we move from the death to the burial of Jesus. Do you have an answer to death? Do you have a solution for death? You want one, don't you? You recognize your need for one. And even though we seem frantically trying to put off the reality of death as much as possible with all sorts of reconstructive surgery and supplements and the latest studies that come out and tell you if you sleep in some sort of barometric chamber, you can you know, put off death indefinitely and lengthen life. And we're frantically trying to act like we actually somehow are in control of death that we somehow can manage this thing called death. And maybe you're sitting there and your life right now or generally has gone pretty well. I think That's probably true of most of us in this culture. We have relatively easy lives. And a lot of times we decide to do something and what do you know, it actually comes to pass. Maybe even the majority of the time. And, and we can plan something and accomplish that. And wow, we, we can get, start to feel like we're actually running the show. I'm running this thing. Well, what's your solution to death? See, in the midst of self-deception telling you you're in charge, death comes along and punches you right in the mouth. Not just yours, right? But death all around you, it's unavoidable. And we can come up with all sorts of ways of trying to ignore it and whistle in the dark, but you've got to come to grips with the reality of death and you've got to find a solution. And God has that solution. And amazingly, it's through death. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, we are going to look this morning at just one glimpse of the work of Christ and it's the burial of Christ. You've probably heard about the death of Christ a lot and thought a lot about it. You've probably no doubt heard a lot about the resurrection of Jesus. But the burial of Jesus is a very important work of Christ. It's almost strange to talk about Jesus being buried as one of his works. But it is. It is. And so we're going to read about the burial of Jesus this morning... And learn some vital truth. So let's go to God as we go to His Word. Lord, help us now to focus, to feel the depth of the problem of sin and death. Help us to then flee to the only solution in Christ. Thank you for your Word, and I pray it would find its target in our hearts exactly the way we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15, the burial of Jesus, beginning at verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, okay, we've got to understand this since here, Day of preparations, the day before the Sabbath, as we read, that you prepare for Sabbath observance. You get everything ready, you go through these rituals so that you are prepared for Sabbath observance get the Sabbath meal ready. You go through your ritual cleansings to remind you of your sin and your dependence on God for that cleansing of sin. You remember the Passover and you remember God's provision for his people throughout all of history. And now on this Sabbath you rest and you don't work to remind yourself of your desperate need for God's provision and that you can't provide for yourself. And so Sabbath needs preparation. And so this is the day of preparation. Now, the reason that's very important in this context is because we've got a dead body on a cross. And we're actually three hours from the Sabbath starting. And, and you can't do the work of an undertaker on the Sabbath. That, that's defiling work that makes you unclean that's clearly work and so we've got a problem we've only got three hours Jesus dies at 3 p.m. and and now the Sabbath starts when the first star can be seen in the sky and so we've got probably no more than three hours and we've got a problem with the Jewish law that says don't leave a body that's died unburied in the Sabbath don't work in the Sabbath so, so we've got a dilemma here we've got a, a dilemma with the, the Jewish law we've got a dilemma with the Roman government here because they're in charge of this body they're the ones who say whether someone is executed or not and that body belongs to Rome and so we've got quite a dilemma here with this dead body on a cross and so what happens 43 Joseph Of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself, very important, looking for the kingdom of God. Wonderful description of this man. That that is a powerful thing to have said about you. He's looking, he's longing, he's waiting for God's kingdom to come. To be that person requires recognizing that everything isn't okay. God's kingdom has not come. You listen to people talk sometimes, especially motiva- motivational speakers and health wealth preachers, and you'd get the impression that the kingdom's already come. But no, we've got a desperate need for God's kingdom to come. It's it's something He needs to bring, and it's something we desperately need. So to be someone described as looking, longing, watching, waiting for the kingdom, says this person knows His Bible. He understands God's perspective on human history and he isn't depending on himself or human ingenuity or human politics or, or uh, efforts uh, to get things done. We need God to enter and answer. So he's longing for the kingdom. He's looking for the kingdom. And he takes courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why did it take courage for him to do this? Well, He's a member of the Jewish council, that very council, most likely, that decided to put Jesus on a cross and got Pilate to do it for them. So, to go and then ask for the body of Jesus is, yes, an expression of his Jewish piety and desire to keep the law. But as we find out here and in the other gospel accounts of this, it's far more than just being religious and not wanting the law to be broken. He's learned to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. He loves Jesus and he cares about Jesus. And so he breaks ranks with the other leaders of which he is a part and he goes to Rome who's in charge of this body and likes to display the dead executed body as further shame and demonstration of the power of Rome. And he says, can we curtail that so I can bury him? That's why it took courage. He's really asking for something unusual and he's defying the majority vote of the religious leaders of which he's a part and he's asking Rome for something that's out of the ordinary. So it took courage. He goes public with his following of Jesus here. And he went to Pilate and asked him. And Pilate, watch his response, was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Second time, we're told, Jesus surprised Pilate. Once in his silence in the face of his accusers, remember just one chapter before, and now with how quickly he had died. Sometimes people took days to die in crucifixion. Sometimes for one reason or another, and they couldn't wait, they would break the legs of the the crucified person so they could no longer relieve the pressure on their lungs and it sped up death. Sometimes it took days. Jesus took mere hours and it shocked Pilate. See, Jesus' suffering was so acute, both physically in his beatings and also emotionally and spiritually in his suffering as he bears the sins of the world and the wrath of God because of it. It just takes hours. So Pilate's surprised, and he actually doesn't quite trust the testimony of Joseph. So what does he do? Halfway through 44. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. So this Roman centurion, this soldier who was charged with making sure Jesus died on a cross... Highly likely the very one who said, this man indeed is the son of God, the one who had some sort of conversion experience when he watched Jesus die, now is asked to give his testimony in addition to Joseph's and he affirms the reality. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Jesus, the body. Jesus has become an It. It's a stunning description of a person. The only other time we have this word used is to describe the body of John the Baptist when he was executed. Maybe making a connection here to now this lifeless body that Pilate unusually grants to Joseph. The corpse of, to Joseph. And Joseph begins the process here of burying Jesus. Quite an elaborate process as Jewish law prescribes. He's got limited time, you remember, and so he's got to hurry. He's got to run to the marketplace and the first thing he has to do is buy a linen shroud. Fine fabric. Probably a fabric Jesus had never had on his body as a relatively poor man. But here in his death, a rich man enables him to be put in a tomb in an unusually extravagant way. Bought a linen shroud. And taking him down. That's just a few words, but my goodness. Can we just pause and think about taking someone off a cross? Especially Jesus' body off a cross. The beatings were horrific. His blood stained and soaked body. Open wounds, not just in his side, but all over. A most messy business. This is what Joseph decides he'll take on. And I'm pretty confident he had help. I think it'd be pretty impossible for him to do all of this, but he's certainly leading the way in this horrific task. Taking him down. Do you know who I want to meet really soon after I get to heaven? Simon of Cyrene. Pulled from the crowd to help Jesus carry his cross. I can't imagine he actually was thrilled at the moment. But what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing to have helped Jesus with. And here, I want to talk to Joseph. In heaven, I want to say, what was it like? Tell me. It's a horrible thing you decided to do for him. What was it like? He takes him down from the cross and wraps him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. Again, so characteristically understated for the Bible, but it wasn't just wrapping him and laying him in a tomb. He was very concerned that things be done right and that no doubt had to include washing the body. An up-close picture of the suffering of Christ as you can get. Probably trimming his hair as burial requirements would have. Closing his eyes. Preparing the body with spices and, and then carefully wrapping the body in this linen he had just spent money to buy. And then, his own tomb, his family's tomb, very likely, he he gives a burial place to Jesus. An amazing, amazing act is this burial. And then, with help, no doubt, he closes the giant stone that's rolled across the entrance of the tomb. And then this very important observation Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Ah, witnesses. Not just to the death, not just to the resurrection three days later, but to the burial. A lot going on here we need to think about. The first observation I want to make, it's certainly not the main point of the passage here, but I do think it's intentional that these women keep getting mentioned. One, because they're witnesses. They're witnesses of a historical reality that is changing the world, changing everything forever. So these women are there at his death. The women are there at his burial, and as we shall see, they're the first ones to find out that the tomb was empty and Jesus has risen from the dead. So we've got witnesses to these key events in the life of Jesus. What else I want to add to the women here is the other key witnesses, the key truth-seers in this picture here. So not only the women who actually wouldn't be your first choice for good witnesses to prove something in this context. Because in this context, women's perspective, women's testimony wasn't respected. It wasn't even admissible in a court of law. Like much of human history, women were not valued, respected, given the dignity they should be. Uh, But the reality is that's actually something that shows us the historicity of this event. If you were trying to invent some story and you wanted people to believe it in this context as the gospel writers did, you wouldn't pick women to be your witnesses in your fictional account because it didn't carry weight in this environment. And so that's one thing that makes you say, oh, yeah, if this is fabricated, that's a really dumb thing to include in your story if you want people to to give it witness weight. Uh, But who else is working here? Well, who else is seeing things clearly? A Roman soldier. Oh, yeah, that's the guy who's going to really get Jesus right. A Roman soldier. Actually, the one in charge of making sure he was killed. A Roman centurion is seeing things clearly and giving the accurate testimony of truth here. And who else is? A Pharisee, who by now in the gospel, we have really low estimation of in their ability to see the truth and see Jesus for who he is. And so we've got women, a pagan, and a Pharisee getting it right. You can't ever assume somebody's never going to come to Jesus, never going to see the truth. If you were going to start a ministry, probably your first person you want to go talk to about Jesus would not be the Roman centurion in charge of killing him. If you really wanted to build a ministry, especially in this context, you wouldn't want good women part of the equation. It's just not going to give you much social capital. And a Pharisee by now, we just have a pretty dim estimation of, they were the ones leading the yelling to put Jesus on a cross. And here we see this Pharisee Joseph of Arimathea seeing things rightly and carrying out a most beautiful act toward Jesus. We find out in our passage a few important things about Joseph, don't we? We're told he's a respected leader, verse 43, right? He was a respected leader of the council. As we said, he was looking for the kingdom of God, he showed courage, he was courageous. In John's gospel, we get more information about him that we don't get here, like he was a secret disciple of Jesus. He was already a disciple of Jesus, but he wasn't overt about it. He wasn't public about it. He wasn't coming out of the closet with his discipleship of Jesus. And here he finally does in our story. So he, in John's gospel, we're told, was a secret follower, disciple of Jesus. And we find out in John's gospel, he's a friend of Nicodemus. Nicodemus gets involved in the burial in John's gospel and brings the spices. Matthew tells us some things Mark and John don't. Like he was rich. We could have assumed that, right? But he makes it explicit. It says he's a good and righteous man and that he, on the council, didn't consent to, to the killing of Jesus. So here's a man with a lot of power and importance and money, and I love the fact that here God uses all of those things. We needed someone who had the resources, and that's who God used to do this. Resources that God blesses us with, wealth, importance, prestige. He could get an audience with Pilate. And God wanted to use all those things In Joseph's life to accomplish his purposes. And so we get this good man, this righteous man who's devout, who has integrity, who's devoted to Christ, and who's patient and waiting and hopeful, removes Jesus from the cross and makes sure his burial is appropriate. It's amazing. I I sort of knew how important the burial of Jesus was, but. I I really had no idea just how important it was until I I dove into this passage. It's incredibly important to think about the burial of Jesus and why it's so important. If you would uh, keep your finger here in chapter 15 of Mark and go over to 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to see Paul's perspective on the central truths of the gospel he preached. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it very clear what the most important things are. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Among all the important things, what's the first most important thing? What I also received, here it is, that Christ died. Okay, for our sins. Yes, that's why. In accordance with the scriptures. Ah, this is very important. And then look, that he was buried. Ah, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he gives lots of historical details to validate the witnesses to that resurrection. But isn't that fascinating when he says first of importance included in that is the burial. I'm sure this was a lead passage in the formation of the Apostles' Creed that affirms the the essence of the Christian faith and includes the burial. And every important creed of the church has done that since. It's seen as one of the things of first importance. It's very interesting. And throughout the history of the church, in the the iconography and the art of the church, we see Jesus descent from the cross. And his burial portrayed many times. I actually have a couple. This is, this is Rembrandt. And if you know anything about Rembrandt, you just immediately know this. The Master of Light portrays this. Jesus being removed from the cross. I'm not sure he intends for that to be Joseph. In particular, Fred Sanders it helped me think through some of these things. But look at this beautiful picture of Jesus being removed from the cross. And it's not idealized. You can tell that the man removing him doesn't enjoy it. He's not enraptured in this moment. It's, it's not a happy thing, but he's doing it tenderly. And beautifully, nonetheless. We also have artists like Rubens with the entombment of Jesus starkly portraying the lifelessness of this body. The blood drained from this body, the wounds still bloody on his way to being prepared for entombment. It's a powerful picture. Mary's face matching the skin tone of Jesus in the best interpretation, showing us that Jesus truly shared our humanity because he shared hers and therefore truly represented us in taking on our frailty and being able to die. Beautiful pictures. Let's go back to the. the the Rembrandt, but, but, but this is a very important image, no doubt because, as the Bible says, it's a thing of first importance. Now, why would that be? What is this about this event that makes it a thing of first importance? Well, I think because it magnifies and intensifies and emphasizes the reality of the first thing he mentions, which is the death. It says, yeah, he really died. Can you think of anything more ter- terrifying than being buried alive? Burial is something that happens to someone who's dead. That's this affirmation yes, this death is true, it's real. Do you know since Jesus died, since the very hour he died, people uh, have been concerned that he would be risen from the dead or there would can be continued problems. So even before he rose from the dead, they started to come up with possible theories they could talk about to make sure people didn't really think he rose from the dead. Like his disciples stole the body, that's it. That's what they actually said, the religious leaders, when there was an empty tomb, they said, oh, see, the disciples stole the body, which had no basis in reality or history. People, even today, Muslims don't believe Jesus died on the cross, they they say he didn't really die, And, and a lot of modern liberal scholars deny that Jesus truly died, or that he was truly buried, too, you know, just thrown in a... In a side of the road and eaten by animals, some Jesus scholars, so-called, are saying today. And so there was a need right away to affirm the reality of his death so that the reality of his resurrection would be real too. See, if you don't have a true death, you don't have a true, true resurrection. And so th- this is incredibly important that we see it as an affirmation of his true death. So, The burial's key here. It's a thing of first importance. Maybe firstly, we need to recognize, remember how Paul says that these things happen according to the scriptures? According to the scriptures? That's the first thing to emphasize here. This burial is something that happened according to prophecy, according to what the prophetic scriptures said would happen in the life of the Messiah. Where? Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So this messianic picture, this, this picture of the Messiah to come, right down to the detail of somehow having a death with a rich man even though his death was an expression of poverty. And the details of that are made true according to the scriptures. That's why when the apostles preach Jesus in Acts 13, 29, they say, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb according to the scriptures. So when we think about death in its gut-wrenching reality and don't try to ignore it or explain it away glibly and see it for what it is and feel the difficulty of that, we have hope. And that hope starts with the fact that we know that this death even of Christ, especially of Christ, does not catch God by surprise. It's actually part of his plan. Death itself is part of God's plan to wake us up to the reality of our need for him so that we never get satisfied in this world. Read Romans 8. That's what it's getting at. The futility of this world, the difficulty of this world, and the death in this world is to wake us up that this world isn't all there is. And you don't have a solution to that ultimate consequence of our rebellion against God. That's what death is. It's not something to be ignored. It's something to be acknowledged and look right in the eye and say, I need a solution to this. And I don't have that solution. God needs to provide it. We do. We all need that. And, and God provides that solution beautifully. And Jesus really dies. And why does he die? Because the wages of sin is death. Death is that penalty for our sin and Jesus pays that penalty when he really dies. He really takes our place with his human nature and in his humanity and in his frailty and in his capacity to die. Jesus, because he became a human being, the eternal son took on a human nature, then has the capacity to cease to function biologically and experience the ultimate punishment for sin, Death. He really does that for us. So, do you see the burial emphasizes the reality of the death and therefore the reality of the atoning sacrifice he makes for us? Listen to what Philippians 2 8 says Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And then Paul just can't believe it. Even to the point of death on a cross. That's how Paul's saying that. He he humbles himself so much, not just to be lonely at times and rejected and misunderstood and abandoned by his best friends and thought crazy by his own family. No, to the point of death he humbles himself, even death on a cross. And this burial is an affirmation of the reality of that death. Jesus' death and burial that shows that death is the sure payment for our sins, and it paves, paves the way for eternal life through resurrection because his resurrection's real, because his death is real. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul continues where he started in the passage we looked at. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So this perishable body that we all have that Jesus himself took on, he took on the capacity for perishability. What is sown is is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. The resurrection is real because the death was real and the burial puts the exclamation point on the reality of that death. And so the resurrection life is real too. We find out something else glorious about this. God never forgets his beloved, even in the grave. He tells his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus tells us that. And that's true even in the grave. When you turn your back on that loved one in that grave and leave that cemetery and you feel the sting of that, know that God tells us that he never forgets. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but that's not the end of the story. Resurrection leads to a reuniting of the body and soul. This tragic result of human rebellion is reconciled, it's fixed, it's solved. Please don't tell me the body looks so good in the funeral home. You hear that all the time, don't you? I want to scream when I see a dead body. There's something so wrong. But what's your solution to that wrongness? How do you solve that? It's got to be through resurrection. It's got to be through a representative of us in our human frailty, imperishability, being made imperishable in resurrection. That's what we desperately need from him, and that's what we have in him. He'll never leave us, just as the father never forsook his son in that grave in those three days, but brought him to life. Reunited in relationship, he promises that that's just the beginning of a redeemed and resurrected people who follow in that wonderful resurrection life. And, And last, the last thing I want to think about is that all this glorious truth, all of this amazing, life transforming. Life-giving truth that we rest in needs to invade our daily lives and relationships. One of the toughest things about the Christian faith is you've got this body of knowledge outside of us that's objective and true and historical. It's true whether you believe it or not. It's true of whether you experience it or not or feel it or not or have your life changed by it or not. It's true. That's a hard sell in this culture, but that's the fact. It's true. It's true. And then when you come to believe it's true, you spend the rest of your life internalizing it, seeking to live in light of it, seeking to embody it and and see it come to reality in your life because you're so convinced that God will never forsake you, never abandon you in Christ, even in the grave. Because you become so convinced of that, your whole life looks different. I want you to look at some really powerfully ethical teachings here in the New Testament and watch where they're grounded. Watch. Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. So love like brothers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you're also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Don't miss that word. For, why do I live this way? How can I live this way? What's the basis of that sort of life? It's not mere ethics disconnected from the truths about God. Look where it's grounded. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yeah, we we don't have to live in fear of anyone or anything because we fear God. He will never forsake you, even in death when you trust him. And that gives you the kind of freedom and confidence and security and boldness to live a sexually pure life. To have a marriage that endures difficulty... Because you trust God so much. You don't need to steal and grab for money and cheat so you get more money because God will provide for you. He's your helper. You don't need to love money. You can be content. Do you see, our whole lives are grounded in the character of God and what he's done for us in Christ. We go through the Heidelberg Catechism as a church, and I hope you could jump on. It's never too late. But two weeks ago, the question was Catechism question 43. What are the sacraments and the ordinances? What does that have to do with our sermon? You shall see. The sacraments are or ordinances given by God and instituted by Christ, namely baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible signs and seals that were bound together as a community of faith by his death and resurrection. By our use of them, the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of the gospel to us. Maybe you don't see clearly how this applies to our burial sermon this morning, but look at the verse the catechism gives right off the bat to understand this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. One of the great privileges of my life is to be able to baptize folks in here. Many of you have been baptized. There are probably some people in here I have baptized, and some of you have baptized people in here, but what do we say? That's the verse we say. Buried with him. In death and raised to walk in newness of life, do you see the reality of Jesus' death and burial becomes ours by faith, and then the newness of life that leads to becomes ours by faith. Well, it's tragic that the Christian life becomes a system of ethics, Or religious observance disconnected to the character of God and the powerful work of God in Christ. That's why we live the way we do. That's why we can live in newness of life because Jesus really had newness of life in his resurrection. And because by faith we are identified with him in that death and that resurrection and burial too, we can have totally different lives than we would have otherwise. It's a glorious truth before us this morning that we can't miss. It's so important we see this. I'm just astounded by the fact that Joseph was a secret disciple. And the thing that brought him out into the open and made him courageous wasn't the resurrection, like I think was mostly true for the other disciples. It was the death. Like that centurion, there was something in his death, something in that power made perfect in weakness, That made Joseph say, All right, it's time to live it. (laughs) I can't hang out in the shadows anymore with Nicodemus. It's time to go public. It's time to live it. It's time to walk in newness of life. It's time to do whatever I can by faith and grace for the sake of the honor of Christ. Don't live in the shadows. We live in a culture that's increasingly hostile to explicit biblical teaching, and the temptation will be to recede into the shadows. No. We serve a God who said, I will never leave you you," or forsake you, and that same God did not leave his son in the tomb, and he'll never leave you either. So we can live with an astounding boldness and courage and power in walking in newness of life because he really died and was buried and rose again. Father, help us. We are so timid and frail and powerless so often. Thank you for the truths of the gospel we see in this burial account this morning. Help us, Lord, to believe in the sufficiency of Christ because of who he is and what he did. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.